Hi, this is Peter Bergman, and this is Radio Friaz's daily podcast, Everything You All Know Is All So Wrong. Hey, it's November 29th, 2011. It's my birthday. I'm a year older, and I couldn't be happier. A lot of friends came up on the Peter Bergman Facebook page yesterday and the day before and wished me happy birthday, and it did make me feel warm all over. It's possible to feel alone in this world, and one of the nice things about social networking is that people can reach out and send you the, the nicest sentiments. So thank you very much, and I wish you the same on your individual birthdays. Tomorrow, by the way, is Winston Churchill's birthday. I always like smoke a cigar on the 30th of uh, November, my only cigar of the year. So it's my birthday. I was born in 1939, 60 days after the Germans invaded Poland and World War II began. I often say that I am the last baby born before the boom. I was born the day before Winston Churchill reached 65, a time when most people would retire. But a few months later, I think May 10th, 1940, he was prime minister of an embattled England and on a spiritual plane at least fought Hitler mano a mano. Things have changed so. I mean, the day of my birthday is a time for me to reminisce because I can indeed look back. I can look back on the last year and I can look back on all of my life up to this instant point, this singularity, the now that we eat all the time. We not only live in the now, we eat in the now. Well, I what, what do I remember about my childhood, amongst other things, is when I was six years old or something like it, I opened up the uh, color section of the uh, Sunday Cleveland Plain Dealer, the color magazine, and on the cover was the atom bomb, Kel Supreze. I grew up with the bomb, not just the atom bomb, I grew up with the hydrogen bomb. I remember ducking under my desk in fourth grade to protect myself from the H-bomb. Yeah, four inches of plywood was going to protect me from thermonuclear destruction. I knew something was wrong. I never really felt safe. Oh, things changed so quickly. Television came to me in the sixth grade, went over to a friend's house, had a little black and white set with a magnifying glass on the front of it to make it ever so bigger and wobbly, and watched Howdy Doody, which was amazing. And DJs in Cleveland on TV, well, you'd see him put the needle down on the record, then you'd hear the music and they'd do pictures of trees or something like that. And, and what kept me sane in those times? Because as I say, with a bomb hanging over you, and as a child, I had this strong sense that people weren't really making a perfect world. Uh, it's not something that I passed on to my schoolmates, but it was an epiphany I had. At the age of eight or nine, I think, I walked out in front of my house in Shaker Heights, Ohio, looked at the curb, and there was a splash of oil on it. And it just overcame me that men and women, that the world was not trying to manifest beauty. Uh, there you go. Just made me shudder. I think I carried it with me ever since. Well, what kept me sane was, well, there wasn't a name for it exactly. I guess you'd call it rhythm and blues now. It wasn't rock and roll. Nobody said race records. It was black music that was very popular in Cleveland, Detroit, uh, you know, Pittsburgh, New York, various places, great urban centers. And Cleveland, of course, was one of them. And three blocks from me lived Alan Freed. Yes, that's right, Moondog. He had a show late at night, 11 o'clock at night, and I used to stay up and take the big Bakelite radio 
that kept me warm in the winter and listen to Alan Freed. And the songs were so funny. Not all of them, but a lot of them. I said, reach for the sky. Well, I don't seem to understand. I don't want no monkey business. I got to stop in my hand. It was the black rock and roll or black rhythm and blues, whatever you want to call it, that made me laugh. And making me laugh kept me sane. I stranded in the jungle, afraid and alone, trying to find a way to get to my baby back home. I smelled something cooking and I looked to see and oh my God, that was a cooking me. Oh man, there was nothing. The, the, the white culture wasn't funny at all. No, it's not true. Ernie Kovacs, Sid Caesar, Martin and Lewis, but they were at a distance. They came over the TV. They were, in a sense, codified, whereas music, you could tell it was coming out of some bathroom or some small studio, some intimate, warm, sticky space. And that kept me sane. Yeah, and in high school, I had one fabulous teacher. Let's face it, high school is a crashing bore. I don't care where you go, maybe, Bronx School of Science, maybe some special umpty dumpty place. I was at Shaker Heights High School, as good as it got in public education. We were on a campus. It was a beautiful place, but it was a crashing bore. Except for Mr. Pickering, my 10th grade English teacher, who introduced me to Dos Passos and Wolf and all those wonderful people. I, I'm thankful to him forever. And so I was, I was a serious student. I mean, there was in those days, let's see, I graduated from high school in 1957. There was no choice for a bourgeois middle-class boy except to go to college. I mean, if you didn't go to college, you became what? A gangster? Um, I, I had no other idea. Of course I was going to go to college. And even up to my junior year, I was under the impression that there was one school, really good school, on the East Coast called Harvard-Yale-Princeton. I remember a friend of mine came home from Harvard wearing a tweed jacket and smoking a pipe. I thought that was really hip. And uh, he went to Harvard and he talked about Yale and Princeton. I thought it was all the same. So that's what I applied to. I applied to Harvard, Yale, and Princeton and found out later there were others. And I did get in. I got into Yale with a full scholarship. I got into Harvard as a sophomore with no scholarship. Couldn't figure it out. How could that possibly be? How could they skip me a year because of my SATs? and not give me a scholarship. And my freshman year at Yale, soon on, I, was, I had to t have a job. They were called bursary jobs. If you had a scholarship, you had to work, okay? It wasn't so bad, you know, but I was working 12 hours a week, and it was too much. I was taking these special programs, so I went in to see the dean. And I said, Dean, I just can't do 12 hours and keep up this directed studies program. Is there something you can do? He said, well, how, how long would you like to work? And I said, well, how about six hours a week? He said, well, that's fine. Reached into his desk pulled out six $100 bills and told me to go give it to the bursar, the registrar, to make the difference. And as he was closing the door, drawer, I said, Dean, how come I got accepted to Yale with a full scholarship, skipped a year at Harvard with no scholarship? They knew I couldn't go there. My parents couldn't afford it. He said, well, let me check it out. Goes into the files, flip, 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 pulls out mine. He goes, oh, and this is without attitude. Oh, well, you were traded. I said, traded? He said, yeah. He said, uh, har um, you know, um, Harvard needed somebody who could row, and we needed a Jew with high SATs. So that was the world of 1957, the so-called silent generation. You know, it was, a, it was a fabulous time. Unfortunately, one 
one was kind of inculcated with the idea that it was a man's, man's, man's world. I mean, one of the things about going to a top Ivy League college is that you were sure, regardless of what courses you took or how well you did, that the world belonged to you and you stepped out into anything you wanted to. You want to be a banker or a doctor or a preacher. Not, not a captain in the army. That wasn't something that most people hankered after, but you could do just about anything. And it, and it took us all a while to figure out that it's a man's and women's world. And in fact, now in 2011, more women graduate from college than males and more women graduate from law school than males. Now, I thought about going to the Yale Law School. Uh, I, I, the college I was in, they had these residential colleges. Those were your dormitories, and that's where you ate, and you took certain seminars there. It was right across the street from the Yale Law School. I applied. I got in, got a scholarship, la-di-da, and uh, I didn't go home um, for Christmas vacation uh, until a couple of days into the vacation, so I was there all by myself, and one night I looked up at the tower of the law school, and there were like 20, 25 lights were burning in windows. So I went and asked the guard. I said, gee, that many people stay uh, during the vacation to study? He said, oh, no, 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 they're not there. They just have the lights on to give the impression that they're studying harder than the other people in the class. And I went, you know, I just don't think this is it for me. So I got a teaching fellowship, in labor history at, uh, at Yale. I was teaching labor economics and I went to a faculty meeting once, all sherry, and had my sport coat, my tweed sport coat, and my, my pipe. I think I actually had a pipe at the time. I was such a butt. And I'm sitting there drinking cheap sherry and this teacher comes up to me, guy in the faculty, talks to me, says, oh, you have a Carnegie Fellowship. Well, your career is, is assured. All you have to do is marry the right woman. And, you know, I got to tell you, I might have been 22, but I was emotionally a 15-year-old. I didn't know a whole lot about getting married. Oh, my God. So I said, no, the academic life is not for me. And I ended up, well, I couldn't make up my mind. I'd had six years at Yale. I just couldn't stand it anymore. So I had to join the Army. That was because, there's another feelings of the times. My homeroom teacher back in seventh grade was a fabulous anti-Semite and the head of the draft board. And he would call my folks and say, I'm waiting for him to get out of college. I'm going to draft him. I'm going to draft him. I'm going to get him. So I joined the reserves and ended up doing a six-month tour in the Army. And just as my six months was rolling up, I had a month left. I got accepted to a Ford Foundation Fellowship in Playwriting in Berlin. But I couldn't go if I couldn't get out of the Army early. So I went to my captain and I said, Captain, I've been accepted into a program that will take me over to something called the Literarisches Colloquium in Berlin, where I'll be writing plays with other Americans to help upgrade the culture in Berlin. And he looked at me and said, Hero, you ain't got a snowball's chance in hell of getting out of this man's army. Well, I thought to myself, and this has happened a few times in my life, I thought, oh yeah? So I called my dad, who was a newspaper man in Cleveland, and he called a man named Howard Metzenbaum, who was an operative in the Ohio Democratic Party, later on to become a, a good senator. And he called Senator Young. Stephen Young had taken over the senatorship from Frank Lauschie, who died, and had no intention of running again. So he was a free spirit. 
And he must have called the military advisor at the White House because like four or five days later, a telex came into Fort Sam Houston saying, release Peter Bergman immediately from the Army, signed Lyndon Johnson, Commander-in-Chief. Well, normally it takes you like two days to get out of the Army, you know, standing in line, give them your helmet, give them your pants. They were tearing the stuff off of me. I was out of there in two hours, and before I knew it, I was in Berlin. Oh, my. What a time. What a time. It was me and Tom Stoppard and Piers Paul Reed and Derek Marlowe and Gunter Grass and, and, and Bruce Connor and, 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 and Stan you know, Brackage and all kinds of, and Shirley Brown, all kinds of interesting people came through there. Uh, the, the Living Theater came and lived with us. It was an amazing time. You know, before the advent of extraordinary digital communication, YouTube, for example. Did you know that more video is uploaded on YouTube in a week than all the video broadcast by the three networks since their inception? Hey, now that's a brand new world. So things were a little more, well, predictable back then. If you wanted to be a playwright, you had to write plays and get them produced. If you wanted to be a musician, you had to get a music, you know, deal with a company. Everything had sort of a known course. Thank God today that isn't true. Anybody from anywhere can, can make it happen because of the extraordinary ability to reach out. I'm, I'm completely for it. I mean, I don't care how much of an a-hole the guy who started Facebook is. He gave us a marvelous opportunity. So... I'm, I know, I'm waxing poetic on my life, but the fact is, is that I started Radio Free Oz, which you're listening to right now in 1966 on KPFK, a listener-sponsored Pacifica station in Los Angeles, around which the Fireside Theater was formed. It was the first uh, alternative late-night talk and comedy show in America, and overnight had the largest, just about overnight, the largest FM audience in Los Angeles. People people had never heard Bob Dylan. I picked up all this stuff in Europe. See, I just returned from Europe and I had all this Beatles and Stones and Donovans and all this stuff that people generally knew, but I was really into it. And they'd call and say, wow, and other people would call and say, Dylan isn't singing, that's a throat disease. It was that kind of thing, but it was an exciting time. And you know something? It's still an exciting time. It really is. Because I grew up with the advent and the growth of the American corporate state, and I'm beginning to see the beginning of its demise. Occupy Wall Street, as they say. The beginning is near. We've lived so big, big, big for so long. 5% of the world's population consuming 25% of the world's resources. Insane. Not sustainable. No. We are, whether we like it or not, maybe not through spiritual or mental or economic choice, are going to go small. Small farms are, are on the rise in America. There are more small farms, more local food being grown. Of course, it takes less energy and less chance that you're going to be poisoned by an egg that was dropped by a chicken, you know, a thousand miles away in Arkansas. And that's a good thing. Less fertilizer, you know, going into the oceans, which it is killing. We are uh, basically decentralizing our energy, not overnight, but solar energy and wind energy, also all these alternative energies are decentralized. The grid is not central. Uh, someone did a, 
a review of, uh, they did a flyover on New York City and determined that there was enough rooftop, sun, sun reaching rooftop in New York to, uh, with solar collectors, provide half of their electricity. And the third is that banks are going to decentralize. They really are. We're going to bring Glass-Steagall or something like it back, and people are running to credit unions. It is going to be Mr. Brown down at the local bank at a certain point because too big to fail means you are too big and you are going to fail. So here I am, 72. Yes, I'm a geezer. I'm a real geezer. Happy to be here, feeling vital, feeling very much a part of it, Glad to see the change coming. <laughs> I mean, the change. Newt Gingrich is going to run for the presidency. The crazy, harebrained, anything he thinks in that semi-okay mind of his is okay. People call him an intellectual. I, I don't know. It depends on what you mean by an intellectual. A wise man, no. A wise ass, yes. He's going to run against the great not me or somebody else. You never know. It's a great show. It's a great mummery. I'm glad to be reporting on it. Glad to be in the middle of it. And look forward to talking with you folks and being with you ever so long as I can. So it's been a great year. I look forward to another great year. A year that will remind us all that everything I know is wrong and everything you know 